So if you look at um, the worldwide situation, the United States imprisons more people, both on a per capita and absolute term basis, than any other nation in the world, including the far more populous Russia, China, Iran. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, my co-host, J. Craig Williams, uh, normally be with us on the show. He is uh, unavailable today. He got called out to a, a court matter and uh, is unable to join us. Uh, I, of course, uh, write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And uh, before we get started today, I'd just like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, the online practice management platform for attorneys available at goclio.com. Well, today's topic uh, is going to focus on uh, it, a longstanding issue in government and the news. It's the it's been the subject of many scholarly studies, articles, and books. And that topic is private prisons. Today, we're going to hear from two experienced individuals uh, regarding uh, their perspectives on private prisons, on whether they work or don't work, and why that is. First of all, uh, let me welcome to the show uh, Susan Herman. Susan is president of the American Civil Liberties Union. She also holds a chair as Centennial Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. She teaches courses in constitutional law and criminal procedure. She writes extensively on criminal procedure topics. And uh, the ACLU has been covering and very much involved in the topic of private prisons uh, going back some 30 years now, uh, as I understand it. So uh, welcome to the show, Susan Herman. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is Adrian Moore. Adrian is Vice President of Policy for the Reason Foundation, a nonprofit uh, dedicated to advancing free markets. He has served on boards and commissions developing or overseeing privatization at the federal, state, and local level. He conducts many studies studies regarding privatization, government and regulatory reform, and prisons. And specifically, he has uh, conducted studies comparing the price and quality of private prisons versus public prisons, and he's written extensively on this topic. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adrian Moore. Good morning, Bob. It's great to be on. Thanks for being here. Uh, Susan, let me just start with you. I, I know that uh, just last week, the uh, ACLU had a, a a protest, I, I guess, in in Washington D.C., uh, marking the 30th anniversary of private prisons in the United States. Uh, your slogan was uh, for the for the protest last week was "Nothing to celebrate." Uh, I think we can all agree that that uh, rising prison populations uh, are a crisis in this country. That that uh, strict uh, stricter sentencing laws over the past decades have contributed to this growth in prison populations. Uh, so, what's what's wrong with private prisons from your perspectives? Why why is this a civil liberties issue? 
Okay, um, let me actually start with where you started, which I think is a great place to start, not so much about what's wrong with private prisons, but what's wrong with the American addiction to prison altogether, because it seems to me that private prisons are just one solution to the a very sad fact that we over-incarcerate tremendously. So if you look at um, the worldwide situation, the United States imprisons more people, both on a per capita and absolute term basis, than any other nation in the world, including the far more populous Russia, China, Iran. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the prisoners. Um, Our addiction to incarceration seems to me not only does it deprive any number of people of their liberty, it also very much affects the families of those people in the society, disproportionately affects people of color, and has at best, at best, a minimal effect on public safety. Many new studies have shown that the increase in incarceration rates has not, in fact, done very much to you know, solve the problem of crime. And our um, rate of ex- the explosion in the use of incarceration increasing in over 700% uh, from 1970 to 2005 uh, has resulted in us having 2.3 million people in prison today. And that has not corresponded with the growth of our population or with any increase in the crime rate. So to me, the number one question is not surprising to me that a number of states, as well as the federal government, given the budgetary problems that they've had, are finding themselves unable to spend money fast enough to keep up with the rate at which they're incarcerating people, and therefore they've tried to turn to different solutions. But to me, the number one thing that I want to say before we start getting into the question of why private prisons and have they been good or bad is that this is just the wrong solution to us. The chief civil liberties issue, and there are many civil liberties issues, it's about equality, due process, all sorts of things, is that we we use incarceration as a solution too much. So do you want well, me to go well, on but, and talk well, about well, private prisons? Well, or do you well want sure, to? but I mean, I mean, given given that state of affairs, and given that that states and and the federal government have to respond to this crisis in prison populations, uh, why not private prisons as a solution to that? Well, I think no, number one, again, and this is my bottom line, my first line, my last line. The response to the crisis in incarceration is to do something about the crisis in incarceration and to have more intelligent alternatives to incarceration, et cetera. So that, you know, to me, figuring out how to house that number of people is not a good solution to the problem of we are incarcerating too much people. But putting that aside, it seems to me that some of our chief concerns about the turn to private prisons is that by their very nature, by the um, structures, by the profit motive, by the incentives, by the lines of uh, accountability, that private prisons are, number one, not conducive to solving this problem. For their profits, the private prisons depend on a great stream of people being incarcerated. And there are, you maybe will want to get into more details later about the connections, but I think there certainly are connections with the private prison industry profiting from a crisis in incarceration, lobbying for harsher laws that really make no sense and cause the states to spend more money, and consuming a lot of money that we are you know, squandering on the, um, the criminal justice system and should be spending on things like education. For example, in 2010, the two largest private prison companies alone received nearly $3 billion in revenue, and their top executives each received compensation packages worth well over $3 million. Now, it seems to me that if you don't look at the way that this is all structured, you have industries that are dependent on more prisoners. There are uh, millions of dollars spent each year lobbying around the states and in the federal government, therefore, for laws that will create more prisoners. So that, to me, is you know, the number one problem. It's not even about whether private prisons do or don't do a good job. 
It's that I think the profit motive then creates an incentive to lobby for laws that move us in exactly the wrong direction. Adrian Moore, uh, let's bring you into this discussion. I mean, you've uh, looked at this issue uh, uh, in terms of the, the cost-benefit to governments. Uh, what's, what's your take on, on private prisons and, and uh, to what extent they serve as a solution for this overcrowding crisis that we're facing? Well, first off, I just want to agree with Susan completely that we have a huge over-incarceration problem in this country. Uh, we're, in our attempts to get tough on crime and, lo- and use incarceration as a punishment, uh, we forgot that that's a fairly blunt instrument, and so it winds up ineffectively uh, ineffective in in a lot of its uh, in a lot of its application and so we're not addressing the fundamental question is which is how do we have a system that actually reduces crime how do we measure the effect of imprisonment of various other forms of punishment about what do we do with people when they're in prison so that they don't they don't become recidivists and wind up back in back on doing crime and back in prison again et cetera. So we, we do very little of that in this country because our, all our resources are focused just on catching and locking up criminals. And so we have a, a very low, uh, a low return on performance. So over-incarceration is a huge problem. But I would submit that even if we solve that, and let's just imagine a world where all, every state only had one prison and, uh, and that was enough, we would still want to grapple with how, what's the best way to manage that prison uh, in terms of, of both criminal justice outcomes, but also, you know, from a budget perspective and a management and performance perspective. And so the question of private prisons is not fundamentally about how many people are in prison. The question of private prisons is for each state or jurisdiction looking at is using uh, a private prison or bringing in a private company to run uh, state prisons a way to uh, effective, cost-effective, and effective in terms of quality. Loads of research uh, has shown, and many comparisons, including a brand spanking new study out from Temple University, shows that they do save a lot of money, and they're, they, in terms of quality, they're at least as good as public prisons. And then the last thing, just to get to Susan's point about lobbying, everyone agrees that there is a potential incentive problem here and what you don't want to do is create a, a kind of a prison industrial complex or something where there's this huge incentive for this private industry to lobby for more people to go in prison because that's what they make money off of. Um, but what we forget when we look at that and what several studies that have tried to find private sector lobbying for greater incarceration and have failed to find it is a the private prison industry does not lobby for more incarceration. I challenge the ACLU to come up with an example where a private prison company has given money to a campaign for a piece of legislation to, to increase incarceration. They have not been able to do so. What they can find is that they give to candidates, and they give to candidates on both Democrat and Republican, just like every company does. Uh, there's, there's not an issue there. The other side of the coin is, Government prison guard unions give tremendous amounts of money every year to 
to tough-on-crime laws to incarcerate people. The government prison guard unions have far more incentive because they control 90% of the market right now than the private companies do to lobby for more incarceration than they do. The last, time, the last study I saw several years ago found that the California prison guard union alone spent more money on lobbying than the entire private prison industry nationwide. Uh, well, well, Susan, I wonder how you respond to that. I, I know that uh, looking through the the uh, materials on the uh, ACLU website about this topic, uh, you've you've specifically called out the Corrections Corporation of America as as both contributing to and benefiting from the explosion of in, in incarceration. And I assume by contributing to, you're talking about this very issue of of, of lobbying for. Uh, laws that will lead to greater levels of incarceration. Uh, so wh- how do you respond to Adrian's uh, position that, that this isn't happening? Well, let me respond in two different ways. Number one, where Adrian and I agree, is that creating an incentive for the private sector to be lobbying for more prisoners is a very bad situation. And it seems to me when you have people who are profiting from having more prisoners and this is again and again, you look at this, the CCA um, FEC report that they did in 2010, and they were um, expressed that the, one of the risks that might happen to them is that there might be fewer prisoners or more people might be you know, released on parole. So it's built in that there is an incentive. So the idea that you can prevent this industry, which both um, Adrian and I agree is a bad idea to have people with financial incentives to be lobbying for more prisoners, which is just not a solution. Uh, the fact that the incentives are there means that it's going to be almost impossible to prevent the practice. So as Adrian admits, you know, agrees, or would have to acknowledge, there have been many, many states around the country where millions of dollars have been spent trying to you know, create, contribute to candidates who it's believed will in fact support, quote, tough on crime laws, having more prisoners for more mandatory minimums, um, sentencing laws, etc. In addition to that, there have been some quite direct connections. And What's less interesting to me here is to grade the individual companies now engaged in private prisons. So I would not like to see us spend most of our time debating here exactly what the Corrections Corporation has done or exactly what GEO has done. But I will give you just a couple of examples where I think there's a great deal of evidence that there have been connections. Until uh, 2010, where their connection was exposed and they really, you know, you, I think, you know, stopped doing this so directly, the Corrections Corporation had been involved with ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange um, Council, which has consistently lobbied for more mandatory minimum laws, uh, um, sentencing laws, quote, truth and sentencing laws that would require people to spend more time in prison. And for the past two decades, uh, a CCA executive had been a member of the council's task force that produced more than 85 model bills and resolutions that required tougher criminal sentencing expanded immigration enforcement, which would result in more prisoners, and promoted private privatiza- uh, pri- prison privatization itself. So there have, in fact, been connections. But let me give you a couple of other examples of where I think this industry has really created some problems by its lobbying efforts. Number one is not so much about money, but one of the concerns that the ACLU has about private prisons compared to prisons that are run by you know, governmental entities at the federal, state, or local level is that any governmental agency, federal agencies, for example, are subject to the Freedom of Information Act. If we want to know what's happening inside a prison, we can make a demand, and if the government will not give us that information, we can go to court and we can find out what's happening. For um, quite a number of years now, since 2005, there's been a proposal in Congress to have what's called a Private Prison Information Act, 
where the private prisons would just have to give the same information about their activities as public prisons do. And the, um, the, organiz- the industry has successfully lobbied against having Congress pass that statute five times since 2005. So one of the problems is that we just don't have transparency. We don't have the information. Um, a second problem is that we don't have the accountability. And clearly, you know, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on behind this. And it's not even just about you know, who's getting the contract and, and what, what laws are passed, but it's about the special rules that apply to private prison that are quite different and that really get in the way of having um, decent treatment of prisoners, uh, for example. So in addition to the, um, the whole question of transparency, uh, I was just seeing that GEO, one of the corporations involved, reported in the first quarter of 2013, reported that they had a 56% increase in their profits. Now, a lot of that was due to the fact that they've just had a very favorable decision about their obligations under tax laws. And they're now, they persuaded whoever it was who made the decision that they're in the real estate business. And therefore, they're not paying as much in tax dollars. So what I see here is that there are all these tax dollars that we shouldn't be spending in the first place that are flowing into private hands. The ACLU um, website, as you were mentioning, Bob, has a report from November 2011 called Banking on Bondage, where we talked about the whole phenomenon of private prisons and how when people profit from having more prisoners, it is just inconceivable that there aren't going to be ways in which those people are somehow going to be trying to influence the process that leads them to have their, their market goods, yet to have more prisoners. So I think Adrian and I agree about the problem, but I simply do not believe that there's a way to solve the problem by just saying, let it not happen. I think that if, um, if CCA becomes embarrassed about the fact that they're so overtly involved in ALEC, I think that they will learn to be more discreet. But the idea that you can keep political influence out of this is just not true. Well, thank you. Adrian, I'm going to pick up with you in just a moment. I have to take a moment uh, for a short commercial break here, and we will be back in uh, just a few minutes. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in, less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. We're talking about the topic of private prisons uh, with our guest Susan Herman, the president of the American Civil Liberties Union, and Adrian Moore, vice president of policy for the Reason Foundation. And uh, Adrian Moore, we've we've been talking a little bit about uh, the, the, some of the the lobbying issues here, uh, and, and whether there uh, are are influences being exerted. But uh, I wanted to turn a little bit to the the, the question of uh, of uh, how the the treatment of prisoners might vary at all uh, between a private prison and a government 
run prison. If 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 the profit motive is at play here, if if economies and efficiencies are at play here and trying to drive down costs, uh, do, do privately run prisons have a negative impact on 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 the uh, on the prisoners who are, are are housed there? Well, no, they don't. Uh, again, going back to the seventies, we have a number of of academic studies that have looked at. Uh, what they call quality measures. So comparing, um, in, you know, violence on inmates, violence on guard, uh, additions to sentences, things, you know, the kinds of negative things that happen within prisons, um, and comparing public and private prisons and consistently finding that there is no evidence that there are any uh, worse outcomes in private prisons than there are in public prisons. And, and there's some reasons for that. I mean, if you think about how this actually works, a, a, a private prison is not, you know, uh, an overseas independent country. A private prison is a contract with a company to run a facility, just like contracting out building maintenance, or road maintenance, or a dozens of other things that government co- governments contract out. The difference here is, of course, there's you know there's police powers here. There's there's a lot of authority over individuals' lives, and so these contracts tend to be much more heavily regulated. In a typical government prison, there are a bunch of people who work for the system in there running the prison, and your accountability is the system itself. With a private prison. You have an entity running the prison and overseeing them every day are monitors from the state or whatever entity is contracting who spend their day walking around the prison, making sure that the private company is doing what it says in the contract and making sure that things are not happening to the inmates that are not supposed to happen and so forth. You actually have more accountability, arguably, with a private prison. Now, how that actually plays out uh, I've been to a lot of these private prisons and I've been to a lot of public prisons. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I think the research showing that there's no real difference pretty much tells the story. It's not obvious that you get a huge advantage. In fact, one of my interests in my latest research over the last few years has been, how do we get more out of, if we're going to contract for correctional services, why don't we contract for services in a way that's designed to improve outcomes incentivize better outcomes, incentivize lower recidivism, incentive the kind of program, incentivize the creation and execution of programs that reduce recidivism, and so on. Let's get more out of this, not just the status quo. Um, The other thing to think about within that contract structure is uh, Susan's point about freedom of information. Uh, You know, the only information that you cannot get about a private prison's operations that you can get about a public prison's operations is information about their internal finances. They don't want to give out to the public information about how they operate internally on the business end of things. Everything about what happens within the prisons, decisions made within the prisons, that's all just as much public information. And because it's subject to reporting requirements within the contract and monitoring by the state contract monitors, it's actually much more readily available than trying to get it through FOIA requests, uh, which you know, anybody who's been involved in a FOIA request knows that uh, you, you've got a lot of sifting to do once you're done with that. So 
I don't, I haven't seen a problem with accountability with, in that sense of freedom of information with private prisons, nearly to the extent, <laughs> again, that you have with public prisons, because I have done FOIAs, and it can be really extraordinarily difficult to get that public information out of the public when you really want it. Well, I think I heard Susan chuckling there, so I'm assuming she doesn't entirely agree with what you're saying. Susan, I mean, do you, well, do you, do you see a concern? Do you have a concern about prisoners' rights uh, or, or prison conditions under privately run prisons? Yes, we have many, many concerns. And what, of course, Adrian is citing to the studies that favor his point of view that, you know, that there's nothing wrong here, but there's other studies that suggest that there's very much a problem, including a 2010 Department of Justice study. Uh, suggesting that, in fact, the um, record of private prisons is far worse than the record of public prisons with respect to inmate abuse, inmate-on-inmate assault, inmate-on-staff assault. And if you look at, again, the structures, I mean, you can say, let's not let it be, let's solve that problem, but you look at the incentives and the structures, and it's just set up that that has to happen. First of all, in terms of incentives, what Adrian is saying is, wouldn't it be nice to create an incentive, a financial incentive for rehabilitation? As it is now, the corporations profit from having more prisoners, so they don't have any real incentives to try to train the prisoners to do better once they're out, which is why a number of religious organizations, including the Catholic bishops, etc., have objected to the idea of for-profit prisons. It's just not consistent. With what well, but Adrian's saying build those incentives into the contract. Couldn't that be done? Well, you could have incentives in the contract, but, you know, it, it, but how are you going to do that long-term in terms of recidivism rates? You know, how do you tell who you're rehabilitating? Let me just make a couple of other points quickly because I know our time is short. Um, Adrian was suggesting that there's no connection between the internal finances and anything else that we care about, and I think that's just not true. Where you look at where the um, private prisons say that they're saving us money, you have to look at how they're saving us money. And one of the things they do is they pay their employees less, and therefore studies have shown that the guards at private prisons tend to be less experienced, and there tend to be fewer of them in many prisons. Now, let me hasten to add that what I'm saying here is not universally true of each and every prison. Our time is short, so we have to generalize here. But <clears throat> where you have fewer guards and less experienced guards, you don't have as many people to keep an eye on what's happening, excuse me, day to day to the prisoners. And therefore, there have been studies in quite a number of states showing that as soon as private prisons have taken over, things have gotten worse. There's a recent case study in Ohio showing that a prison in 18 months went from a situation where, you know, they have, the state was running it to the private prison started to run it, and the number of inmate assaults tripled against the staff and doubled against other inmates. They have to look at how the money is being spent. Finally, on the accountability, again, theoretically, you know, the state could be watching, but often the state has, the states have, in fact, contracted with private prisons because they don't want to be taking the time to be spending time in prison. The Bureau of Prisons has not done a very good job at all with supervising the private prisons, which at this point are housing about 16% of all federal prisoners and about half of all immigration detainees. So the accountability, again, when you look at the incentives here, it just it, it can't work. The whole system is set up so that people who want to make money are going to want to make money. And I think we're at the primary place. I think Adrian and I don't disagree at all about what the goals should be here in terms of improving the criminal justice system and having a humane system. But I think that the housing of prisoners is an important obligation. If you want to deprive somebody of getting their own medical care, of their freedom, of their you know, keeping them safe from other inmates and sometimes even the employees themselves, it seems to me that is a very heavy obligation. And when you have people who are making millions of dollars from having more prisoners, it's just an uphill battle 
to try to convince those people or give them financial incentives to do things that are not really consistent with their main motivation here, which is to make money. Well, uh, regrettably, we're almost at the end of our time, uh, and uh, there's obviously a lot to talk about here, uh, a very complex issue. But before we do run out of time, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, share your closing thoughts on this, uh, and uh, also if you'd like to uh, let our listeners know how they could follow up with you or, or find out more about your work in these uh, areas. Uh, so, uh, Adrian, uh, let's let's start with you. Yeah, I would just uh, I would just sort of sum up by saying again that that Susan and I agree sort of on the outcomes, and to me, private prisons is a tool. It's not a panacea. I don't think every prison should be privatized, uh, but if if you can use it effectively, you ought to. And if if a state can't be bothered to monitor a contract it has with a private company to run one of its prisons, how can you expect it to be bothered with running its own prisons very well? I mean, that seems like a, a pretty low administrative bar there. Uh, they, if, if a state wants to be effective in running its prisons and wants to be effective in using private prisons, I think the research and experience over the decades has shown that it can be. Uh, if a state wants to do a lousy job and make poor use of contracting, they certainly can do that, and they certainly have done that, and we've seen plenty of, of examples of that. It comes down to what the Department of Corrections decides to do. Uh, ultimately, they're the, they're the ultimate responsibility, whether they hire guards to run it or they hire a company to run it, it's how they manage it that ultimately is going to determine the outcome. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Reasons Research on, on uh, the use of private prisons, you can find that all at, at www.reason.org. All right. Thank you, uh, Adrian Moore, uh, for being with us today. And uh, uh, Susan Herman, your final thoughts. Well, I think that Adrian has maybe put his finger on the chief disagreement between us when he just said that the ultimate responsibility here is with either the corporation or with the state. What Adrian was commenting that if the state can't be bothered to monitor what's happening in the private prisons, how can you trust them to actually run the prisons themselves? Well, the ACLU has found we have a national prison project because the states do not have the incentive, the political incentive, to be careful about what happens in the prisons themselves. Therefore, we have had to resort to litigation in many, many states to try to require states to live up to their constitutional obligation. The ultimate responsibility here is not with either a private corporation or with the state. It's with the Constitution. And one other thing that we have not mentioned is that the Supreme Court has held that it is not possible to sue private prisons for damages actions in in the federal courts, which is the only way that, in fact, many states have been held to live up to their constitutional obligations. That's a very important way in which private prisons are different from public prisons. If you have to live with that, a large chunk of the oversight that you would have by the courts, and you know, even though there are people of many you know, stripes on the political spectrum who don't like the involvement of the courts, the fact is that because prisoners are not popular and have no lobby, you need to have the neutral federal courts enforcing the minimum requirements of our Constitution just to prevention of cruel and unusual punishment. So if people would like to know more about that, on the ACLU.org website, they could look at three different things. Number one, they could look at the work of the National Prison Project to find out more about the essential role of that litigation. 
Number two, they can look at all our charts, graphs, and blogs about alternatives to incarceration, which at this point is one of our highest priorities, just trying to cure this addiction to incarceration. And number three, on Adrian's question of if you have to have prisons, why not private ones? I had mentioned this excellent report that our staff did in 2011 called Banking on Bondage. There are also other resources on the ACLU website, and I thank you for having this important conversation, and I hope that your listeners will continue to go on, if their interest is provoked, to study more about it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to both Susan Herman of the ACLU and Adrian Moore of the Reason Foundation for taking the time to be with us today and share their thoughts on this issue. Uh, And uh, thanks uh, to all of our listeners for joining us today. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, This is Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.